I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey everyone, it's Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello everyone, and welcome to the second week of Black History Month. Just a few quick things before I get into the episode, I'm gonna make it snappy, I promise. If you are enjoying everything on the main feed, I highly recommend hopping on over to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist and joining me over there. I'm so excited about the new segment that I'm doing for the $5 level, which is called Mad Gavin with Madigan. And every other week, I'm going to pop on there and either answer your questions, give you some advice, answer some of the internet's questions, or just talk about other topics, life experiences of mine, different things like that. I do really, really want it to be an audience inclusive type show. So I really want to encourage everyone, no matter if you are a member of Patreon right now or not, to please send all of your questions or need to advice my way, either by emailing me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or sliding into my DMs on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. I'm going to be working on another one of those episodes in just a few days. And I think in that episode, I am going to share a personal experience as a nanny talking about what it's like working for fathers. 
in my experience working not just in families, but particularly with the dads. It's going to be interesting. You're going to want to check it out. But if you want to show even more support for your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, you can join the $8 tier, which is the Feminist Faves level. And there you get everything that's included in the $5 level. But you also get these episodes early and ad-free, and you'll get some extra bonuses here and there. I'm doing a lot of podcast work with other shows and still having to work my nanny jobs on the outside. So I do my best to make as much new content as I can. And I've got a lot of really great stuff cooking up in my brain. Other than that, I don't think I have anything to fill you in on. I do apologize, though, if you heard my dog Dorothy eating out of her bowl. I just realized she was doing that pretty close to me. So hopefully that didn't make it into the audio. All right. And just as promised, last week I told you that I was going to be covering the Harlem Renaissance. So let's get into it. The Harlem Renaissance was developed in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City as a black cultural mecca, and there was a subsequent social and artistic explosion that resulted. It lasted from roughly the 1910s through the mid-1930s, and this period is considered the golden age of African-American culture. It was born from the changes that took place in the black community since the abolition of slavery, and as the community expanded to the north. But before we can get right into the Harlem Renaissance, we must first learn about Harlem's history. I promise, it's really, really fascinating. Before the European settlers came, the area that would become Harlem was inhabited by Manhattans, a native tribe with other native tribes, possibly Lenape. I have to admit to you all that I did not realize that there were a group of Native Americans called the Manhattans, and I think that's really fucking cool. Anyway, moving on, showing my gaps in my knowledge here. The first European settling in the area was by siblings Hendrik or Henry Isaac and Rachel DeForest, Dutch immigrants in 1637. Amidst conflict with the Dutch, the Native American population decreased. It was the Dutch that named the city New Harlem, spelled H-A-A-R-L-E-M, which was named after the Dutch city of Harlem and was formally incorporated in 1660. It was the British who anglicized the name Harlem when they were trying to take control of the land. Harlem played an important role in the American Revolution. The British established their base in Lower Manhattan, and George Washington forfeited the area around Harlem to oppose them. From Harlem, he could control the land routes to the north, as well as traffic on the Harlem River. The Battle of Harlem Heights occurred on September 16, 1776. The American troops were outnumbered 5,000 to 2,000, and were also ill-equipped compared to the Brits. I don't know about anyone else who is a musical theater fan listening to this episode right now, but I want to start bursting out into Hamilton songs so badly. I honestly don't know how y'all listen to me sometimes. But if you are familiar with Hamilton the musical, you know that somehow they managed to outflank them and force them to retreat to an area around what is now West 106th Street. This was Washington's first American victory. Later that year, the British took their revenge from this victory and burned Harlem to the ground. The rebuilding of Harlem took decades, and infrastructure was moving at a much slower pace than the rest of New York City. Harlem would be mostly rural from the early 19th century until the grid system of streets expanded to Harlem in 1811. Though underdeveloped, 
Harlem was not a poor area. In fact, it was synonymous with, quote, elegant living through a good part of the 19th century. The New York and Harlem Railroad, now Metro North, was made in 1831 to better link the city with Harlem and Westchester County. A wealthy lawyer and land inspector named Henry Hall saw the changes that the railroad would make possible in Harlem, and he began a program of infrastructure development there, building streets, gas lines, sewer lines so shit didn't run down the street, and other facilities needed for urban life. Piers were also built, which made Harlem a new industrial hub in New York City. Due to rapid development of infrastructure, some became very wealthy. During the Civil War, Harlem saw draft riots, as did the rest of New York City. But Harlem was a large beneficiary of the economic boom that followed the end of the war, starting in 1868. As more and more immigrants moved north, the population in Harlem became more diverse, with many of them being poor Italian or Jewish immigrants. More homes, churches, and retail buildings had to be made at great speed, and Harlem property values dropped by 80%. To recover the city, row houses were built in large numbers. These are like a row of joint houses without any land in between, if you're not familiar. More and more railways connecting Harlem to other parts of the city urbanized the area more and more. Black residents in Harlem have been present continually since the 1630s, and as the neighborhood modernized more and more, they could be found in a particular area around 125th Street in the, quote, Negro tenements on West 130th Street. By 1900, there were tens of thousands of black residents in Harlem. In 1904, there was a mass migration of black families due to a real estate crash. Black real estate entrepreneur Philip Payton Jr., who owned the Afro-American Realty Company, has been credited with the migration of black communities from their previous neighborhoods. But there was also another reason. Anti-black riots drove many black New Yorkers north. In 1907, black churches began to move uptown, and several congregations built new large churches. Most of the time, the buildings for these churches were purchased from white Christian or Jewish religious groups whose members had abandoned the neighborhood. Besides these black churches, only white Catholic churches remained in Harlem. And then there was the Great Migration. So there's already been quite a few swells of black people moving from the South and other parts of New York State into the Harlem area. But between 1910 and 1970, six million black Americans were moved out of rural southern states to the urban Northeast, Midwest, and West. Poor economic and social conditions, Jim Crow laws, and lynchings were all causes for black Americans to seek refuge at this time, desperate for a reprieve. The migrants moved to the then largest cities in the country, such as Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., and New York City, where there were more jobs, opportunity, and slightly less overt racism. Many of the migrants settled in Harlem. The population of black Americans in Harlem would continue to grow over the next few decades. For example, in 1910, central Harlem was about 10% black. By 1920, that number rose to 32.43%. Then in 1930, census records showed that 70.18% of central Harlem was black. As more and more black people moved into the city, the more white people then, of course, moved out. And those who resisted the change spoke out and acted out. Some white people made packs that they wouldn't sell or rent to black people. Others would try to buy their property back or evict black tenants. Thankfully, the Afro-American Realty Company retaliated by buying other property and then evicting the white people. <laughs> Fuck yeah. The NAACP became active in Harlem in 1910, and the Universal Negro Improvement Association was built there in 1916. 
These kinds of organizations, plus the large black community in the area, made the community become known as the, quote, spiritual home of the Negro protest movement. The NAACP chapter in Harlem would soon grow to become the largest in the country. The Great Migration drew some of the greatest minds and brightest talents of the day to Harlem. Though Harlem is seen as the hub of this revolution, similar artistic movements were occurring in Cleveland, L.A., and many other cities who were shaped by the Great Migration. It just seems like Harlem was, like, the place to be, though. But even though their numbers were growing, racial tensions did not lessen. While you could argue that the racism in the South was worse than the racism in the North, but any kind of violence and discrimination against someone due to the color of their skin is unacceptable. It doesn't matter what level your racism is. During World War I, it was believed by many that by serving valiantly in the nation's war effort, Black Americans would finally gain respect and equality, though they were not welcome in the military. Many prospective Black enlistees were turned away because there weren't enough Black units to take them on. The drafting system also seemed to favor young white men over young Black men. And for the black men who were drafted, their lives were as segregated in the military as they were in the outside world. When they got home, they were also not received as heroes as the white soldiers were. In the summer of 1919, which would be nicknamed the Red Summer, race riots and other civil uprisings occurred throughout the United States, with tensions high over competition for jobs and housing in many cities and tensions over social spaces. Now that we've covered the history and the background a little bit and the current social situations in Harlem at the time, let's get into the art of it all. The overriding theme of the Harlem Renaissance was overt racial pride and the idea of the, quote, new Negro. Through literature, art, music, and more, they believed they could change the pervading racism and stereotypes of the black race in America and promote progressive socialist politics and racial and social integration. Much of this art was influenced by their ancestors who lived through slavery and their emergence into a new black identity. It was influenced by the effects of institutional racism, the issues of performing and writing for elite white audiences, and the question of how to convey the experiences of modern black life to the urban north. They used their art to prove their humanity and demand equality. The Harlem Renaissance would lead to more opportunities for Black Americans to be published by mainstream houses, perform on more elite stages, and so on. And the Harlem Renaissance laid the framework for the post-World War II civil rights movement. Booker T. Washington seems to set the stage for many of the goals for the artists in the Harlem Renaissance. Washington believed that through his school, the Tuskegee School and others like it, Black students could be provided the needed skills to become successful in society. Their main goal was not to produce farmers and tradesmen, jobs that were expected of the black community, but to help them become real working members of society. Washington would, however, differ greatly from many of the other ideals that were published in the Harlem Renaissance. W.E.B. Dubois, who I will speak on more throughout this episode, did not agree with Booker T. Washington's Atlanta Compromise, which encouraged black citizens to submit to white political rule and believe that equality could only be achieved with full civil rights, due process of law, and increased political representation for black Americans, which he also believed could be achieved through higher education and activism. According to my research, it looks like the first stage of the Harlem Renaissance started in the late 1910s. The premiere of Granny Mami, the writer of dreams, Simon the Serenian, plays for a Negro theater took place that year. These plays were written by playwright Ridgely Torrance. In them, black actors conveyed their feelings and their yearnings. 
They rejected the stereotype of blackface and minstrel show traditions and other racist practices at the time. Civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson said of the premiere of the show in 1917 that it was the most important single event in the entire history of the Negro in American theater. Also in 1917, the father of Harlem radicalism, Hubert Harrison, founded the Liberty League and The Voice. No, not the singing competition show. The first organization and the first newspaper, respectively, of the New Negro Movement. Harrison's organization and newspaper were political, but they also focused heavily on the arts. In The Voice, there was a section called Poetry for the People and a book review section. Ellen Locke's The New Negro, an anthology of fiction, poetry, and essays on African and African-American art and literature, published in 1925, is considered the cornerstone of the Cultural Revolution. Alan Locke lived in Washington, D.C. and taught at Howard University. The book featured several African-American writers and poets, from the well-known like Zora Neale Hurston, who I've talked about plenty on this show, go check out the Patreon episode, and communists like Langston Hughes and Claude McKay, to lesser-known poet Anne Spencer. The New Negro is thought of by literary scholars to be the text of the movement that would become known as the Harlem Renaissance, which was initially called the New Negro Movement based on this. Then there was Claude McKay's Harlem Shadows, which was published in 1922. The poem Harlem Shadows centers around a group of young black women who make money as sex workers in Harlem. There's no judgment cast on these women by the speaker, but it is instead implied how racism and poverty led these young women to do this work out of necessity. Ah, stern, harsh world, that in the wretched way of poverty, dishonor, and grace has pushed the timid little feet of clay, the sacred brown feet of my fallen race. Ah, the heart of me, the weary, weary feet, in Harlem wandering from street to street. Gene Toomer wrote his novel Cain in 1923, which is structured as a series of vignettes revolving around the origins and experiences of Black people in the United States. There is one vignette entitled Carintha, which is centered around a young black woman desired by older men who wish to ripen a growing thing too soon. To me, this really speaks on the hypersexualization of black women. And I think it also really speaks on how there was a hypersexualization of even black children at this time because their humanity was lessened by the racism of the time. There was another vignette entitled Becky, and this one is about an ostracized white woman who had two black sons who lived in a small stone house on the railway. This obviously speaks on the racism that occurred within interracial couples and with mothers who did not look like their children. And this is something that is still a very big issue to this day. People are just fucking ignorant. In Blood Burning Moon, a black man, Tom Burwell, and a white man, Bob Stone, each pursue the same young woman, Louisa, resisting a violent encounter and then a tragic climax. Kane was largely ignored at the time of the Harlem Renaissance to the average white and black reader. It wasn't until another Harlem Renaissance artist, Langston Hughes, credited Toomer and shamed his community for not embracing the novel more. Langston said, Oh, be respectable. Write about nice people. Show how good we are, say the Negroes. Be stereotyped. Don't go too far. Don't shatter our illusions about you. Don't amuse us too seriously. We will pay you, say the whites. Both would have told Gene Toomer to not write Kane. The colored people did not praise it, although the critics gave it good reviews. The public remained indifferent. Yet, accepting the works of Dubois, Kane contains the finest prose written by Negro in America. 
and like the singing of Robeson, it is truly racial. Toomer's work would also influence other Harlem Renaissance artists, but let's focus on Langston for a little bit longer. Langston Hughes was a man of many talents and was successful in the world of literature and in the world of music. He first published in 1921 in The Crisis, an official magazine of the NAACP. He wrote a piece called The Negro Speaks of Rivers, which would become his best-known poem and a signature of his. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawn were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient dusty rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. His first book of poetry was entitled The Weary Blues. Langston and his friend group of writers and activists tried to depict the low life in their art. That is, what they saw as the real lives of Black Americans in the lower economic status, and really working to humanize them. His work depicted the working class, betraying all of the struggle, joy, laughter, and music that went along with it. He said, My seeking has been to explain and illuminate the Negro condition in America, and obliquely that of all humankind. He criticized what would become known as colorism amongst the black community and saw how lighter skinned black people were treated better by their own community than darker skinned people. He said, quote, the younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly, too. The Tom Tom cries and the Tom Tom laughs. If colored people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, their displeasure doesn't matter either. We build our temples for tomorrow, strong as we know how, and we stand on top of the mountains free within ourselves. Langston would win the Harmon Gold Medal Award for his first novel published in 1930, Not Without Laughter. The protagonist was a boy named Sandy, whose family dealt with a variety of struggles due to their race and class, in addition to relating to one another. Another book I'd be interested in reading is a collection of short stories he wrote in 1934 entitled The Ways of White Folks, which shares tragic and humorous interactions between white and black people. In his lifetime, Langston Hughes wrote novels, short stories, plays, poetry, opera, essays, and works for kids. In January 1920, the first issue of The Brownies Book, the first magazine published specifically for black American children and youth, was released. It was created by W.E.B. Dubois, Jesse Redmond Fawcett, and Augustus Granville Dill, and is credited as the, quote, most important moment in literary history for establishing black children's literature in the United States. Before the magazine's release, though, Dubois wrote in The Crisis that this magazine was made for all children, but, quote, especially for ours. Dubois felt that children had a right to be taught their racial identity and social situation. The creators wanted to, quote, make colored children realize that being colored is a normal, beautiful thing. They also wanted to expand upon the canon of black children's literature, in which fiction and fantasy was rare. They also wanted to encourage the youth to participate in the NAACP. All right, these are the seven goals stated as the true brownies. And I did change the wording a little bit because they used the words colored and things like that a lot, which I, it's just really outdated. So I modernized these goals a little bit. One, to make black children realize that being black is normal and beautiful. Two, 
to make them familiar with the history and achievements of the black race. Three, to make them know that other black children have grown into beautiful, useful, and famous persons. Four, to teach them a delicate code of honor and action in their relations with white children. Five, to turn their little hurts and resentments into emulation, ambition, and love of their homes and companions. Six, to point out the best amusements and joys and worthwhile things in life. And seven, to inspire them to prepare for definite occupations and duties with the broad spirit of sacrifice. This magazine was published monthly until December of 1921. Even though it didn't run as long as it should have, it is still considered an integral part of Black history, particularly for children. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, let's rewind a little bit to 1912 when a book entitled The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man was published with an anonymous author. The book is a fictional story of a young biracial man, only ever referred to as the, quote, ex-colored man, living in post-Reconstruction era in America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In the book, the boy experiences witnessing a lynching, which convinces him to try to pass as white to secure his safety and advancement in life, but feels as if he has given up his dream of glorifying the black race by composing ragtime music. The book was republished in 1927, and the author was finally revealed to be James Weldon Johnson. He had initially decided to release the book anonymously because he didn't know how controversial the book would be, and it could affect his career as a diplomat. Next to this book, Johnson's most well-known work is God's Trombones, Seven Negro Sermons in Verse, released in 1927 as well. All right, now that we've talked about some influential literature, I want to get into my favorite part of this episode, and that is the music. A new way of playing the piano was invented in this time, called the Harlem Stride, sometimes just shortened to stride, which came out of ragtime. Ragtime, if you don't know, was a style that peaked in popularity in the 1910s, Its signature trait is its ragged rhythm that's syncopated. Stride built itself off of ragtime, adding a wider range of piano and quick tempos. The compositions were also written to be improvised, which gave each artist an opportunity to bring their own personality and style to the performance. 
The term stride comes from the motion of the piano player's left hand leaping or striding across the piano. Stride players also played pop songs of the day in the stride style, veering away from the heavily composed style in ragtime. James P. Johnson is known as the father of stride, and he was the creator of this style along with his buddies and fellow pianists Willie the Lionsmith, Fats Waller, and Lucky Roberts. Man, these old-time musicians had the best names. Johnson would compose many of the hit songs of the 1920s, including the unofficial anthem of the Roaring Twenties, The Charleston. Johnson honed his craft, playing night after night, working with a variety of singers. One of these was Ethel Waters, who wrote in her autobiography that Johnson, quote, made you want to sing until your tonsils fell out. Johnson is considered to be one of the key figures in the evolution from ragtime music to what was eventually called jazz. On top of making great music, Stride helped bridge the gap between the poor black community and the socially elite black community. Pianos were considered to be very high class, an instrument of the wealthy. So by adding the piano to the traditional bass instruments, which were so popular in the South, black Americans now had more access to jazz music. The legendary Duke Ellington gained popularity during the Harlem Renaissance, who played with his orchestra at the Cotton Club in Harlem. It would go on to be known as one of the greatest American composers. He's known for pioneering big band jazz, which used a large group of musicians with a complex and rich musical style. The song you hear right now is Harlem Twist, East St. Louis, Toodaloo, recorded in 1928. Another legend, Louis Armstrong, also came to popularity in the Harlem Renaissance. Armstrong was an inventive trumpet and cornet player and had a hell of a voice, too. He's so good at all of those things that he is considered a prodigy. He was fundamental to the influence of jazz, shifting the focus from big band music to solo performance. He moved to Harlem in the 1920s and performed regularly at the Cotton Club as well, while also touring around the United States. The song you hear is Savoy Blues from 1927. Chick Webb was a famous leading swing drummer who worked at the Savoy Ballroom, a popular nightclub in Harlem that I also briefly mentioned just a bit ago. He suffered from tuberculosis of the spine, which left him with a severe hump on his back, but that did nothing to hinder his musical abilities. He had a phenomenal memory and could memorize almost any musical compositions despite the fact that he never learned to read music. Whoa. Webb also created a modified drum kit for himself, which incorporated a series of complex percussion instruments and allowed him to play more complex, multi-layered solos which blew audiences away. In the height of his fame, he earned the nickname King of Swing. This song is called Liza and is from a live recording in 1938. Then there was Billy fucking Holiday. Billy became popular a little later on than some of these other artists, reaching her height in the 1930s. This is her song, Strange Fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging. In the southern breeze. 
Her voice was distinctive and earthy with a mellow vocal tone that made her stand out amongst the other talent of the time. Billie became the first black woman to perform with an entire orchestra. Another standout female performer at the time was Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, love her. Ella won an amateur singing contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater in 1934, and from there she joined Chick Webb's band as their singer, becoming a regular herself at the Savoy Ballroom. Ella had an incredible vocal range, and her ability to perform improvised scatting was unmatched. One of my favorite Ella Fitzgerald songs that I grew up singing often was A Tisket, A Tasket. A tisket, a tasket, a brown and yellow basket. I send a letter to my mommy on the way I dropped it. There is a great story regarding Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe, which I just have to shove in here really quick. Marilyn was once asked who her favorite singer was, to which she said, Well, my very favorite person, and I love her as a person as well as a singer. I think she's the greatest, and that's Ella Fitzgerald. This message of endorsement brought Ella's fame to new heights, and I think is a great example of allyship and true friendship. There's more to this story, but I'm going to save it for another time because I'm definitely going to be covering Ella Fitzgerald as soon as I possibly can as a feminist fave. Women and the LGBTQ community. While it wasn't common for many people to live their lives out of the closet at the time, there were quite a few artists from the Harlem Renaissance who are believed to have been members of the Alphabet Mafia. I've mentioned Claude McKay and Langston Hughes, both of whom are suspected to have had same-sex partnerships in their lives, but it was kept a secret to the public, so we can't be sure. I've also mentioned the Cotton Club, which routinely held gay drag shows in addition to their straight performances. There were also lesbian and bisexual performers, such as Gladys Bentley and Bessie Smith. Bessie had a beautiful voice and would go on to be a mentor to future black female singers. This is her song, Biale Street Mama. Gladys Bentley would dress as a drag king, often backed up by a chorus line of drag queens. Bentley was the owner of the Clam House on 133rd Street in Harlem, and it was a hub for queer patrons. The Hamilton Lodge in Harlem also hosted an annual drag ball, which drew thousands of audience members who came to watch young men dress in drag. There were many safe spaces like these for queer people in Harlem, but there were also loud voices opposing them, such as the Abyssinian Baptist Church minister Adam Clayton Powell Sr., who openly opposed homosexuality. Then there was Gertrude Ma Rainey, who dressed in traditionally male clothing, and her lyrics often reflected her sexual proclivities for women, which was obviously incredibly radical at this time, as I'm sure you could have probably guessed. In her song, Prove It To Me Blues, she sings the line, Went out last night with a crowd of my friends. The music coming from the Harlem Renaissance was so undeniably good that white people began listening to it and became influenced by it as well. And that could be seen as a positive, but mm, there's a downside. 
white composers began to exploit the musical talents and themes of black musicians and their work. White composers would use poems written by black American poets in their songs and would implement similar rhythms, harmonies, and melodies of, quote, African-American music such as blues, spirituals, and jazz into their concert pieces. There were also many white people who looked to profit off of black artists. A great example of that is Charlotte Osgood Mason's relationship to Zora Neale Hurston. In the art world, black artist contributions were overlooked and downplayed by gatekeepers who profited from their talent and creativity. The artist Betty Sarr's work was discovered and collected by white artists and curators who took credit for promoting her work. Sarr's work appeared in galleries and museums, but her work was not always acknowledged or credited properly, and her art was also stolen and exploited for a profit. Sarr is a very fascinating character, by the way, and I am adding her to the list of future feminist faves as well. As for influential musical theater from the time, the play Run, Chillin' Run was a standout. It was written by Hall Johnson and first premiered in 1933. The play contrasts pagan and Christian religious traditions among black people in the American South. When it premiered on Broadway, it ran for 126 performances. Then it was revived in 1935 at the Federal Theater Project in LA, where it ran for two whole years. I want to talk a little bit more about visual artists, because there was a lot of beautiful visual art that came from the Harlem Renaissance, with artists such as Aaron Douglas and Augusta Savage. Augusta was an artist and an art teacher whose form of art was sculpting. One of her better-known works is Lift Every Voice and Sing, also known as The Harp. It's a plaster sculpture commissioned for the 1939 World's Fair. She was asked to create something to symbolize African-American music, and the piece was inspired by the poem Lift Every Voice and Sing, written in 1900 by James Weldon Johnson, which became known as the, quote, Negro National Anthem. The sculpture was 16 feet high and took the form of a large harp with the strings represented by 12 black singers of decreasing size, standing in long robes supported by a long arm and hand representing the arm of God as the surrounding board of the instrument. It's very, he's got the whole world in his hands. I'm going to post a picture of this to the Instagram page if you'd like to take a look. In front of the harp, there is a bare-chested black man kneeling, holding the music for the song. She had given it the title, Lift Every Voice and Sing, but the World's Fair people changed it to The Harp. The piece was a hit at the fair, and postcard replicas were sold as souvenirs. But unfortunately, the piece was destroyed in 1940, along with the rest of the temporary works after the fair's second season. Aaron Douglas was a painter, illustrator, and visual arts educator. He developed his art painting murals and creating illustrations that addressed social issues around race and segregation. One of his most iconic pieces is Let My People Go which depicts the Old Testament story about God's order to Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. The piece was done in purples and gold tones and is in an Art Deco style, and it shows golden hands holding a sacred scythe that represents God's power over justice. The piece also conveys themes of liberation and hope. Now, we must talk about the fashion of the Harlem Renaissance. Before the Harlem Renaissance, black women wore mainly prim and proper attire, but now they were wearing shorter skirts and silk stockings, drop-waisted dresses and clutch hats, loose-fitted garments or flapper dresses accessorized with long pearl necklaces, feather boas, and cigarette holders. These fashions exhibited flamboyance and elegance and was suitable for the dance style of the time. 
The Harlem Renaissance fashion was a unique blend of African and European influences and was full of experimentation as Black Americans sought to express their identity and challenge the mainstream with their outfit choices. There were a lot of bold colors, intricate patterns, and attention to detail. For women, their style at the time was about the rejection of traditional gender roles and as a way to reflect their new sense of independence and confidence. Men wore what is now known as a zoot suit, a loose-fitting style of suit with a wide-legged, high-waisted, peg-top trouser and a long coat with padded shoulders and wide lapels made of silk and wool. They usually then topped it off with a fedora. Men also wore wide-brimmed hats, colored socks, white gloves, and velvet-collared Chesterfield coats. Ugh, so fucking classy. Josephine Baker was a major trendsetter at the time for black and white women alike. In her earlier years, she performed in flapper fashion with her iconic bob and sleek evening gowns with ornate headbands atop her head. This became symbolic of the era's liberated spirit. But when she performed in Paris, that made her into a true fashion icon. Offstage, Josephine had a more androgynous style, often wearing tailored suits, bow ties, and cropped hairstyles. Designers such as Marc Jacobs and Christian Louboutin have credited her as an inspiration, as well as black designer Patrick Kelly, who gained recognition in the 1980s. Josephine Baker's fearless approach to style and celebration of her diversity continues to resonate with contemporary fashion icons and designers today, and her legacy serves as a reminder that fashion is a powerful tool of self-expression, empowerment, and social change. But while all of this amazing stuff happened in Harlem during this 20 or so year period, we know that there would be a long road ahead of the black community that continues to this day in finding equality. Let's talk about the decline of the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance would begin to decline with the onset of the Great Depression, but the ideas and the work that began in that time would continue to flourish. But economic instability led people to shift their focus elsewhere. And it seems like another contributing factor to the change of heart during this time was the Harlem Riot of 1935, which further put an end to the idea of optimism in the Black community. It took place on March 19, 1935, and according to my research, it's considered the first modern race riot in Harlem, as it was directed more at property than at other people. The uprising began with rumors that a Black Puerto Rican teen shoplifter was beaten by employees at a five-and-dime store. The 16-year-old Lino Rivera had pocketed a 10-cent penknife, and for that, an employee of the shop threatened to take him to the store's basement and, quote, beat the hell out of him. Rivera bit the employee's hand, causing the manager to intervene, and the cops were called. In the meantime, a crowd gathered as a woman who watched the teenager being apprehended began shouting that the kid was being beaten. When the ambulance showed up, they treated the wounded employee who had been bitten. The woman who sounded the alarm was arrested for disorderly conduct. The store was closed early and the crowd dispersed by the urging of police. But a rumor was spread that there was a hearse scene outside of the shop and many believed that Lino had actually been killed, which of course caused things to erupt even more. That evening, there was a demonstration outside the store and eventually tempers ran so high that someone threw a rock through a window and general destruction of the store and other white-owned businesses in the surrounding area ensued. Three black people were killed, hundreds were wounded, and they racked up about $2 million in damages to the properties throughout the district. 
According to Jeffrey Stewart, a professor of history at George Mason University, the riot symbolized that the optimism and hopefulness that had fueled the Harlem Renaissance was dead. But even though the focus was no longer on the celebratory and lavish lifestyles of the Roaring Twenties, the freedom and expression of the Harlem Renaissance would continue in the hearts of the Black community. The art that was created in that time no doubt inspired the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, as it instilled in the Black community across the United States a new spirit of self-determination and pride, a new social consciousness, and a new commitment to political activism. And that is the Harlem Renaissance. I feel like I got so many fantastic ideas for future episodes while researching the Harlem Renaissance this week. I definitely added... I think five people to my list of feminist faves to do in the future. And I'm so excited. I actually think I might mix up some of the things that I had planned for this month so that I can cover one of those people, but I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet. But I do have two more new episodes coming out for you this month to celebrate Black History Month. And then after that is Women's History Month. And I was thinking about this because it does get tough to think of themes for Women's History Month for the show because every month is Women's History Month on this show because we talk about feminism and amazing women throughout history and events that have affected women in some way. So I was curious as to what everyone would like to hear on the show or what they would like to learn that is specific to Women's History Month. I am all here for your suggestions. I'm always a huge fan of whatever you have to come up with. So email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. And while you're sending me any topic suggestions, feel free to send me anything for Mad Gabin with Madigan as well. Send me some questions. Ask me for advice. Let me know what topics that you'd like me to cover on the $5 level on Patreon as well. And to join, you can either click the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. Your love and support for me over there means the absolute world. So thank you very, very much. And I think that that is all that I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.